live from New York City. No, we're not in New York. I'm in Boston. <laughs> Welcome to CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman, industry analyst and your host. CXO Talk brings the most interesting, experienced people to have in-depth conversations about issues such as the one we're talking about today, artificial intelligence. We have a, a, a wonderful show today, and we'll be speaking with three great guests. Stephanie Wander is with the X Prize. David Bray is an Eisenhower Fellow, uh, an executive in residence at Harvard, and is CIO of the FCC. And Daryl West is with the Brookings Institution. So let's begin. I want to remind everybody that there is a tweet chat happening right now using the hashtag CXOTalk. And I want to give a special thank you to Livestream for supporting us with our video infrastructure for video distribution. Livestream is really great, and we love those guys. So uh, let's begin. Stephanie Wander, how are you? Thanks for being here, and tell us about yourself and about XPRIZE. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, XPRIZE is a nonprofit foundation. We are dedicated to changing the world by offering large-scale incentive competitions. So we'll offer millions of dollars to teams of innovators to solve the world's biggest problems. Um, at XPRIZE, I've been really privileged to design pr several prize competitions, including the one we recently launched for the IBM Watson AI XPRIZE. And um, I'm recently actually changing roles a little bit, and I'm going to start working uh, to launch our XPRIZE Institute, which will be a strategic sort of pillar for our organization, helping to set forth a vision towards a world of abundance. Okay. And David Bray, you have been a guest here on CXO Talk quite a number of times. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Michael. So you already mentioned my, my role as Chief Information Officer at the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, it's a nonpartisan role working across the 18 different bureaus and offices of the FCC. Our scope is everything wired and wireless in the United States. Uh, my other hat is that of an Eisenhower Fellow uh, to Taiwan and Australia, which meant in 2015, I got to meet with both their public sector and their private sector leaders in each country and ask what were their plans for the Internet of Things. Uh, and that dialogue continues now. Uh, obviously, with the Internet of Things, the only way you're going to make sense of all that data is with machine learning and AI. Fantastic. And Daryl West, this is your first time, and welcome to CXO Talk. Thank you, Michael. It's nice to be with you. So I direct the Brookings Center for Technology Innovation. So we're interested in all things digital. Uh, we are especially interested in the legal policy and regulatory aspects of technology, uh, kind of how all the various innovations that we're seeing affect people, the impact on society, the impact on the economy. Uh, some of our work is based in the United States. Uh, some of it is global in nature. So, Daryl, let's kick off the conversation. And would you share with us your view of digital disruption and the changes that we're, that we're seeing around us? Well, we are living in such an extraordinary time period just because the pace of change is amazing. You know, when you think about what we're seeing now, the rise of robotics, uh, that's starting to transform the workplace. Many factories are being automated. Uh, the development of artificial intelligence, uh, and that is uh, developing in many different areas. Virtual reality is uh, starting to 
come on the scene. Uh, last week, I was watching the Super Bowl, and there actually were ads for virtual reality. So we're seeing that uh, start to hit the consumer market. So it really is a great time period, but it also raises good and bad uh, questions for society. And so we need to think about what impact these various emerging technologies are going to have on all the rest of us. So what are, uh, to to any of the panelists, what are some of those impacts on society that we're likely to experience with artificial intelligence, autonomous systems, autonomous vehicles, and so forth? Anybody want to take a crack at that? Sure, I'm happy to. I think we at XPRIZE really look to AI, well, we look at it for twofold. One is we believe these um, disruptive technologies will have an incredible impact on our ability to change the world for the better, to actually help create more equity, um, and to really enable us to personalize solutions so that everybody has access to the best possible solutions for them, whether it's in health or in education. Um, We certainly are looking at risks like automation and what how it might impact the workforce. We're also really interested in sort of these surprising kind of um, events that may happen, such as we were looking at tissue engineering and realized that as we get autonomous driving in place, we're going to have a lack of organs available for transplant. So then thinking about how do we get ahead of those problems at XPRIZE and really think about how do we plan for that future in, in the best possible way. So I'll build on what Stephanie said and say, my conversations in Taiwan and Australia uh, is really about how do we do the business of a nation? How do we do the business both locally at the local level? Uh, We know with automation and machine learning and AI, there's going to be huge advantages. We may be able to make sense of data to make communities healthier and safer in ways that just humans would not have the time to wade through all the data. At the same time, we know that a lot of what private sector is aiming for is to automate a lot of these jobs um, that right now may have a human in the loop. You'll actually have greater productivity if the human's not in the loop, which raises questions about what are the jobs of the future? Will more jobs be created than destroyed with AI and autonomous systems? And really, what is the type of education needed to make sure we have a workforce that can even be competitive for that future scenario? So there, Stephanie mentioned this combination of providing greater equity in the world, but at the same time, these risks. And it seems to me that this question, this balance between the possibilities, the opportunities, and the risks seems to be at the crux of the issue and the, and the questions around AI and the, the ethical questions. I think that is the case. Like trying to find the proper balance there on technology innovation is the key challenge that awaits us. Because when you think about a lot of these uh, technologies, they are going to liberate people. They're going to make us more efficient. They're going to free us to do a lot of other things. There are many uh, good things. I personally love technology and just uh, the freedom that uh, comes with that. But then at the same time, there are questions in terms of, is there a possible loss of privacy? Uh, We're going to have billions of sensors that get deployed in the workplace, uh, in people's homes, uh, the systems of transportation, uh, energy, and healthcare. How are we going to navigate this uh, new world? You know, people are used to dealing with computers, kind of, you have a computer and you work on your tablet and your laptop. Increasingly, 
computing is going to move to machine to machine communication. So humans are going to be taken out of the equation, but we have to make sure that when these machines are making decisions, uh, that they are respecting basic ethical considerations, they're making decisions in a non-discriminatory manner, and that they're doing the types of things that we want as opposed to things that might create problems for us. I think if we step back just further, I just want to add to that, that I think we're not even talking just about artificial intelligence. We're talking about a really rapid pace of change in society. And how do we, you know, get data, capture data, understand what's actually happening and understand what kind of impacts we're even having. And that time to sort of analyze action is going to, I think, decrease over time. And so it's really going to be interesting to see how as a society we manage all of the new, both opportunities and challenges that arise. And if I can echo what both Daryl said and what Stephanie said, because I think it was great that they're talking about there's huge opportunities, there's huge benefits, and it really is about the rapid pace of change. If you think about it, when the car first came out, nobody really thought that we were going to have these challenges of interstate crime, because now you could actually use a vehicle to participate in a crime event that's not in your locality, and the local police may not know who you are before you return to the scene. That doesn't mean we shouldn't roll out cars. We definitely should move forward and we should try and embrace these things because technology itself is amoral. It's how we choose how to use the technology that determines whether it's good or bad outcomes. And so what I really want to see is what are the conversations we need to have with the rollout of AI and machine learning so that we can be informed in the choices, both as individuals as well as societies. Because really what we're facing is with this rapid change of technology, AI, and, and how it's impacting individuals is people are becoming super empowered but humans themselves aren't fundamentally changing. And so what do we do in a world in which people are now super empowered through technology? What does that mean for family lives, work lives, and society? So who, how do we, is this something that's screaming out for regulation? Does the market regulate it? How does this, how do we balance the risks associated with AI and the, the fact that there may be a disproportionate advantage and disadvantage to certain groups inside society. I mean, I think we have to be careful about being heavy-handed in the regulatory process. I mean, when you look in the past with emerging technologies, we've often uh, done that. But with digital technology over the last few decades, we have allowed private sector companies to experiment, to innovate, and to bring new products to uh, the marketplace. And basically, the government role has been you know, building infrastructure and kind of uh, thinking about the broader legal and regulatory environment, but trying not to impose too many restrictions because we want to see what these uh, innovations uh, can do. Now, as we have seen that, we've seen some problems. Uh, and so uh, then I think it's appropriate for agencies to uh, step in and deal with particular uh, issues. I personally uh, am, am concerned that the pace of technology change is such that top-down is not going to be able to keep up with it. So I'll agree both with Daryl in terms of you want to see what's possible, but we may even need to rethink as to how do we even begin to address this just because the sheer scope of change, if you go through the normal process of review and coming up with some idea and some response, that might be two or three years, and we know that's lifetimes. Uh, and Stephanie can maybe speak to it in the next price cycles. I mean, you probably don't think beyond six or 12 months just because of the nature of the, what the technology can do is changing every six months. Yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty okay. spot on. I would say, we, I mean, we think about sort of three to five year time horizons for the most part. Um, I wanted to just speak to the other side of this, which is sort of what do we do about sort of bringing everybody with us on this journey? And I think it, at XPRIZE, we feel really strongly that the crowd, 
you know, the smartest people are out there in the crowd. We're about to see a billion people come online in the next decade. And for us, it's really about ensuring that they have access to education, that we are empowering everybody with tools to be solvers. And I think a lot of this will come down to actually having um, access in the wealth that's generated in the coming decades in terms of whether or not we see everyone getting to benefit or whether or not we see a so sort of top down kind of model. You know, but the thing is with this, it it sounds like in order for everybody to get the benefit, it requires social change. So we've got this technology, AI, that and technology in and of itself is neutral, but it has the power to drive so many changes, as David was saying, uh, economic change, social change, cultural change. And so how do we manage through this transition period, which may be a lengthy transition period as well? I mean, the key thing, I think, at this stage is really digital access. I mean, we still have about 20% of Americans that are not online and therefore not able to share the benefits of this amazing technology revolution that is taking place. But even among the 80% that does have access to the internet, some of them have slow speeds, so they can't take advantage of the latest developments. So I think one key challenge for all of us is to increase access in a way that allows everybody to take advantage of the things that are taking place. And then when you look internationally, as Stephanie mentioned, you know, there are billions of people who have no access to uh, technology. So uh, many of those people are located in India and in China and in various parts of Africa. Uh, So we're working on ways to improve uh, digital access in those parts of the world as well. I would almost equate it to how the Industrial Revolution took about 100 years. I think we are going to compress that, and I'm going to just put out an estimate. It's going to be 100 years of change comparable to the Industrial Revolution in less than 20 years. And if you think about where we started when the Industrial Revolution started in the 1800s, you know, 95% of people never went beyond a five-mile radius of where they were born. Uh, And then at the end of the Industrial Revolution, now we have travel over both oceans as well as across large continents. And so you're right, Michael, that this is going to change how we live, how we work, how we experience. And supposedly, according to historians, the way we dealt with the Industrial Revolution, how we coped with it was through alcohol. Now, I'm not saying we're going to cope with the AI revolution through alcohol, but human beings will need some safety valve. And maybe it is virtual reality or maybe it is augmented reality or some some other way to help us through coping it where we actually have a little bit of fun with the technology. But we also recognize that the way we fundamentally live, that we're no longer just going to live in a five mile radius of where we were born that same sort of thing is going to happen, that it's not that you're going to necessarily have just one job or even that you're doing the job by yourself, that you may be now doing it with a collective intelligence of both machines and humans working in, in ways that we could even comprehend today. But how do we avoid the, the problems that we currently have? I mean, even in this country, uh, resulting from globalization, because, for example, it's the people who, 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 for example, are working in a factory where the jobs have been displaced. And those folks are taking the brunt of the broader economic benefits that are accruing to the country from globalization. So there's so there's a disproportionate negative effect on that particular group of people. And it's expressed itself in in politics today. So I will I will avoid the political side because I'm a nonpartisan. But I will say you've hit the nail on the head. And this is with all respects to anyone who's an economist. 
that economics was developed at a time when you couldn't know all the economic thoughts that were going on in the world in real time. And so it is an approximation of what we think human behavior is, but it's really not a science. And in fact, there's a wonderful article from the early 2000s in the American Economic Journal that takes 10 classic predictions from game theory and looks at how people actually behave. And it turns out it only has about a 30% accuracy to their actual behavior. And so it may very well be that we have made guesses on policy in the past that were not based on actual empirical evidence as to whether this would create jobs or not, or whether this would help increase people's livelihoods or not. And now we're facing sort of the fact that there may be this low tide of globalization where workers that are in a country with a strong currency cannot compete as much as currencies with lower currencies. And it's not saying we should devalue our currency. But that does raise the question of if we've made decisions in the past that were anecdote-based as opposed to empirical science-based, maybe now with the Internet of Things and machine learning, we can look at what people's economic decisions are around the world in near real time. We can see what would actually trigger and stimulate more jobs at the local level in rural areas that maybe are losing jobs at the moment and actually have it be evidence-based job creation as opposed to anecdote-based job creation. Daryl, what's going on around the world? You've, you are, you spend a lot of your time in other countries. And so how are other countries thinking about this very difficult set of issues? Uh, every country around the world is trying to figure out exactly what the policies should be, uh, what type of encouragement uh, they should uh, give to build a pro-innovation-based uh, economy. Uh, you know, they want to get the advantages uh, that they uh, see taking place in the United States and in Europe. So uh, recently I've been in uh, Singapore, uh, which is a hotbed of technology innovation. Singapore actually is a global leader in many aspects of uh, new uh, technologies. I've been to uh, China. Uh, they're trying to figure out how to take advantage of uh, these trends. They see a technology as a big driver of the next stage of economic development, and they want to make sure uh, that their companies are at the leading edge of uh, this. But, you know, it's complicated for every country because they look at the United States and especially Silicon Valley, and they say, oh, you know, we'd like to have a Silicon Valley in our country as well. But it's been virtually impossible for other countries to replicate that model because, the United States has this particular blend of really good educational institutions, the ability to raise uh, capital through uh, venture uh, firms and otherwise, and then a regulatory process that has been pretty light touch that has allowed uh, these firms to uh, innovate. So other countries are trying to find their own particular niches so that they can build a 21st century economy. And what about, uh, I know, uh, again, Daryl, you have focused very much on autonomous systems, auton like, like autonomous vehicles. How does, how does that break out as opposed to the broader sector AI? We have uh, done work on autonomous uh, vehicles. Uh, we put out a, a paper on this uh, looking at the development of autonomous uh, vehicles in China, Europe, Japan, Korea, and the United States. And virtually every region and every major car manufacturer uh, around the world is interested in uh, this new technology and spending mil millions and billions of dollars uh, trying to uh, promote it. So everybody is interested in this. This is a revolution that is probably going to take place much more rapidly than many people realize. Uh, most of the major car companies are aiming uh, to roll out uh, actual autonomous uh, vehicles uh, by 2020. Uh, so uh, that's not very uh, far away. Uh, 
we're already starting to see it in the taxi area and in the car sharing business. Another sector likely to be disrupted is uh, truck driving and uh, delivery uh, systems. Uh, there's a lot of experimentation uh, taking place uh, there. So both in the United States, in China, and in other places, there's a lot of enthusiasm about this uh, because they see this uh, technology as developing very rapidly and they're poised to deploy this commercially. I'd just add to that too, like I'd encourage people to really pay attention to sort of autonomous flight as well. There's actually quite a few companies building uh, electrical, highly efficient aerial vehicles for human transport. And so pay attention to Uber, pay attention to a company called Ehang. There's just some really interesting stuff that we'll probably see a lot sooner than we think. Um, They're going to major sort of regulatory issues for them to get get through. But from a technology standpoint, they're very close to having it. I think we'll definitely have Uh, personal flight in our lifetime. So we have a a number of different, uh, we could say, application areas of AI and autonomous systems and machine learning. Are the ethical issues and the policy issues distinctly different for each of these? How do we we address that aspect? So I personally would advocate context, context, context. Uh, I do think context does matter. Uh, that said, I do think we need to approach it first and foremost with almost a humor, human-centered approach in terms of, is this giving more freedom, more autonomy? As Daryl said, technology is great in that it gives people freedom. So we need to think about, is this continuing to provide people with more freedom? But at the same time, thinking about with those freedoms provided to the individual, what is the possibilities of what they could do to other individuals as well? So I almost think we need to take almost like the golden rule of do unto others as you would have them do unto you and maybe update it for the technology era, which is have the AI, have the machine learning be such that it allows you to do unto others as they would permit you to do unto them. So we need to be able to express in a way that's not checking a thousand boxes or trying to change our privacy settings or something like that, but that you can express what your preferences are done to both your person as well as your digital self. And then the machine and the AI respects that. And to add to what David was saying, I mean, I think when you look at autonomous vehicles, the legal and regulatory challenges are enormous just because the transformation and the impact on people's lives are going to be very enormous. So, for example, when we're doing research on autonomous vehicles, I was surprised to discover that fully autonomous vehicles collect over 100,000 data points. Like people have no idea how many sensors there are, how, uh, you know, what kind of information is being uh, measured. Uh, Autonomous vehicles have sensors that uh, measure, you know, what's going on in the engine, uh, the speed, uh, 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 how you're uh, dealing with the various things that you encounter. Uh, People are going to be surfing online and texting while they're riding in fully autonomous uh, vehicles. They're often doing so over the auto, uh, automobile's Wi-Fi system. So basically everything you're doing, which you think is a personal act, is going to be uh, captured. So the question is, how do we deal with that? Uh, and who has access to that information? Insurers, of course, love this because uh, now when they're offering safe driver uh, discounts, they're basically having to take your word that you're respecting the speed limit and driving safely. In the future, they may may be able to get access to your car's actual data to find out 
are you speeding? You know, are you going above the speed limit? Are you uh, driving uh, drunk? You know, there are sensors that can measure your alcohol uh, level at the moment you uh, sit in that car seat. So, you know, who's going to have access to this information? Who owns it? And to what purposes are they going to use this information? We have an interesting comment from Twitter, and I'm hoping I'm going to pronounce his name correctly. Uh, Ergon Ekechi, I probably probably pronounced it wrong. Anyway, he makes the comment that with the increased adoption of AI, technology is changing the way enterprises engage and understand customers. And I think that there's a real possibility for that exact same thing to happen inside the public domain with uh, governments, the relationship between governments and policies and citizens. So any thoughts on, on this? Well, there's always the potential that technology can uh, bring citizens closer to government uh, in the sense that, you know, if you have complaints about garbage collection in your uh, neighborhood, you know, you often feel that government is remote, they're not responsive, they don't really address your uh, problems. But through some of the uh, smart city applications that are uh, coming online, uh, you know, it's possible to uh, make that complaint for the city uh, agency to uh, deal with that and for you in real time to be able to track what they are doing and how they're responding to your particular problems. So there's the potential of really good things uh, coming out of this. You know, there's a lot of citizen cynicism today. Uh, people feel that, you know, government's not very responsive to uh, what uh, people want. Technology may end up being part of the solution to that. So I will build on that real quick and just say, uh, I think with machine learning and AI, there's an opportunity to both ideally bring citizens and public service closer together, but maybe even re-envision how we actually even do public service. Um, if you think about it, I, I, when, I, when I talk to audiences, I'd like to ask them to raise their hand and say, do you have in your pocket the ability to call anyone in the United States any place, any time? And most of them raise their hands if they've got a smartphone or a cell phone. But I say, did you have that 20 years ago? And most people did not. And so same thing with machine learning and AI. We may even be able to sort of stop doing things that require a government professional to do them and instead may be able to think about things that can be done either by the public directly. I mean, if you if you saw something that was pollution in your area or you saw traffic and a bad road construction in your area, would you be willing, if the data was kept private and kept anonymous, to share that data to inform public service to fix the problem? Probably you would if you could be assured it would be kept private. And so things that in the past required government workers to spot the problems to try and fix them, the public could, maybe if they're concerned on their local level about making their communities healthier and safer. And similarly, things that had to be done just because the time it took for something to go from Topeka, Kansas to D.C. was four days on horseback, maybe 150 years ago. Now it's milliseconds. And so there may be also public-private partnerships. And that's why I like to say government is an increasingly outdated term. What we really should be using is the word public service that includes members of the public as well as public-private partnerships and then government workers. So one of the one of the themes that has come out so far during this conversation is this notion of equitable access to resources and and also the notion of partnership. David, you just mentioned public private partnerships and Arsalan Khan asks a very, very interesting question on Twitter that I think hinges on this or touches on this, which is the notion of bias in the data. 
Because with AI, if your data is biased, you're going to have biased outcomes. And equitable access and equitable results depend on impartiality. So how do you how do you think about how do you guys think about this issue of bias? Well, this has been a risky area for some of these emerging uh, technologies. So, for example, there already have been some issues where technology, instead of playing to our best instincts, allows people to play to their worst instincts. So, you know, for example, on car sharing services, on Airbnb and so on, there's been some evidence that sometimes, you know, if you see the picture of that African-American that wants to rent your home or uh, get in your uh, vehicle, there's some evidence that uh, drivers are a little less likely to pick up a minority rider. So, you know, that's an example of where the technology itself is neutral, but the way that people use it isn't necessarily uh, so uh, neutral. So we have to be careful uh, that as these artificial intelligence systems develop, as data analytics uh, take place, as we see a a big increase in machine-to-machine communications, that the technology is respecting the values that we care about, that, uh, you know, it doesn't allow us to discriminate, it doesn't allow us to act unfairly, it doesn't allow us to play to our own worst instincts. Yeah, I think just to build on that, I mean, what you sort of outlined, Michael, is really kind of the double the double edged sword of artificial intelligence. This idea that now we actually have technology that can help make decisions for us, or it can personalize things. And of course, humans have implicit bias, so our our data will also be biased, or those decisions that even machines may make for us may have some bias in them. And I don't. I think it's going to be kind of the the question of our age, which is how do we really. Um, enable our decisions to be outsourced to improve our our lives, but then how do we also sort of manage that and ensure that we're getting exposure? I think we have much more of a sort of opt-in culture to the world's knowledge, and I I think there's actually a potential scenario where we start capturing a lot of information, and we don't even, and we kind of lose it as a society. It's captured, but we don't choose to look at it or question it anymore because it kind of has a sort of obsolescence that has come across, and I I think that's really it really is a tough, tough question, and I, I think we'll spend a lot of time talking about it in the future. In a way, we're dealing with it's different, but it, but we're dealing with the issue today of privacy and data collection, and it's it's not exactly the same, but in terms of the pervasive collection of data. And then what do we or what do uh, third parties, companies, the government do with that data? And it seems like drilling down into this, it's one of the the most basic ethical issues associated with AI, at least in in the public sector, for sure. So I would say uh, uh, the computer science mantra of garbage in is garbage out. What we really need to think about is can we have something where people could be at least aware of the data that is being fed to teach the machine and inform it? And then can we even also maybe have a machine that is actually almost sort of watching what other AIs reach conclusions to and point out if it observes biases? Uh, For example, California right now is actually trying to use machine learning and AI to help set bail decisions. The challenge is initially it was fed historical bail decisions, and when it was fed that data, the, the, the verdicts it started to make on bail decisions realized that there was a bias in those past bail decisions. It saw things like it was taking into account someone's gender or their race or their height or their weight, which really should not matter when you're trying to set a bail decision. So I agree that in some respects, it's almost like 
If you go back to James Madison, 1788, with the Federalist Papers, where he said, what is government but the greatest reflection of humanity? If all men were angels, no government would be necessary. Let's just replace the word government with AI and say, what is artificial intelligence but the greatest reflection of humanity? If all men and women were angels, you know, we wouldn't need AI. And so it's going to reflect us, but it may also be able to, and I'd actually love to see, uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't know if I can... Uh, convince Stephanie at XPRIZE to do this, it'd be great to have a challenge of a machine that would actually help point out our own biases as an individual, so at least we're aware of them, and then we can try and figure out how we're going to address them. We have a very interesting question from Twitter. Chris Curran, who uh, is works for PW is a partner at PwC and has been doing digital transformation and CIO related research for many years that, that I've known him. He asks, how do we figure out, uh, how do we manage the, how do you, I'm sorry, how do you determine if a large machine learning training data set is biased? I mean, that's a really, that's a tough question. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great uh, question. Uh, and I think the answer comes down to open data. I mean, these technology systems are generating an extraordinary amount of information. And this information can allow decision makers to make decisions in real time. You know, we're used to research projects that take days, weeks, or months to collect data, to analyze the data, and then to report back. Well, in the digital world, you know, we can actually get those data in real time, analyze them almost immediately, and be able to act on the latest uh, information. But as uh, Chris uh, suggests, uh, you know, it's a tricky issue uh, th that when you're kind of analyzing material in real time, how do you make sure that the information is fair, that it's accurate, that it's being used for a good purposes, that it doesn't enable discrimination on the part of people who uh, hold various uh, points of view? So that is the real challenge. But if we make the data open and accessible to researchers, that acts as some check on what's going on in those systems because researchers can uh, look at data. We've already seen several examples where this has taken a place and the researchers have identified uh, some problems are there. So I think ultimately that's a way to build in some safeguards and make sure that these systems are serving us as opposed to more nefarious practices. What are some of the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, you mentioned the word safeguards. What are some of the safeguards that need to be built in in order to help? I'm thinking now of the, the public sector in order to help the public sector keep up with that rate of change that we were talking about and help support the growth of technologies such as AI, but at the same time, ensure that, public in, that the public interest is met along with it. So I think we need safe spaces to experiment. Uh, the challenge I think we're facing in public services, obviously we have tight uh, funding constraints. Uh, we now also have a hiring freeze. And so I think the, the, the question is, where are those places that we need to make sure that trains keep on running on time, that things are 99.9% .9 up? Those are things that you maybe can experiment with yet. But at the same time, if you don't find anything that you can experiment to try and use AI more, use machine learning more to press the envelope, then we're going to quickly find we fall behind and are out of date. And so we need, we need these safe spaces. And just like we have a Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency for the Department of Defense to help keep them abreast of what's going on with technology change and how they can bring that into their mission, 
we may need to have a civilian equivalent of an advanced research projects agency where agencies and departments could bring their thorny problems where what they're doing right now could be better, could be an exponential leap in serving the public better. And at the same time, they may not know necessarily how to do it. And so they're going to have to do an experimental approach. And what I would love to see is this group reach out to the private sector, reach out to individuals of the public and say, here's our real thorny problems. Maybe it is. We need to actually have a better data and a better science of how to create jobs. Do people have an idea as to how we can, can do that? And then invest in those ideas and see what works. And what I would really love is to see it not specific to any one department or agency, because in some respects, I think we need to defragment that because the problems we now face span multiple agencies and departments, but instead maybe be at most three or five top big issues that cut across all of government at the local level, state level, and federal level, bring those problems to bear, and then use the power of we the people to pitch ideas as to how we're going to bring AI and machine learning to help solve those issues. And to add to what uh, David just said, I think the other uh, thing that we should be thinking about is just improving the level of transparency in how artificial intelligence operates so that all of us have a sense on what basis these systems are making decisions. Like right now, AI is a bit of a black box. There's kind of algorithms and, you know, uh, you know, millions of lines of uh, software code. We don't necessarily know what dimensions are uh, being uh, put uh, into uh, those uh, things. So uh, some people have suggested that a little more transparency just about how those algorithms are operating, you know, what's the basis of these artificial intelligence systems, how are machines trying to learn from the big data that are being uh, generated? I mean, I think all those things would make a big difference in making people more comfortable with some of these emerging technologies. But Daryl, again, when you clearly what you're saying is right, but the moment you start talking about transparency, then there are people who, especially in the commercial sector, that will stand up and say, well, wait a second, these are our proprietary trade secrets. And so how do, so, so you get right back into the, the crux of the problem of balancing uh, public interest against private need. Absolutely. And that is a very crucial uh, question. And certainly, you know, companies should be allowed to have some proprietary information. I mean, there's a a long history uh, throughout uh, uh, the world of uh, uh, trying to uh, protect that. But with emerging technologies, we also need to understand that their social and economic impact on the rest of us is so extraordinary that we as a society do have some vested interests. You know, we don't need to know all of the proprietary information that is there, but just giving us some sense of how these systems are operating, uh, what are the fundamental decision points that are being made, how various ethical uh, dilemmas are being handled. I think there is a social good that comes out of uh, that type of information. And I I would actually add to Daryl and say, one of the good things about public service is it's not in competition, whereas private sector, you keep things secret because maybe that's your intellectual property, maybe that's your trade secret, maybe that's your competitive edge. And so with public service, I think we can ask for more transparency and openness that we may not necessarily be able to expect from the private sector because really it is there to serve the people. And what we may be looking at in the next 10, 20, 30 years is to which degree is a nation transparent about what the machines are making sense of, what data they're ingesting, and what decisions they're making on the data? Maybe you can't reveal the 
complete intricacies because there's some privacy associated with the data. Maybe you have to do one-way hashes of the data so you can't figure out specifically who it's talking about or the people it's talking about. But can you at least express what what decisions are being made, um, what are the outcomes that are being decided, what data is being ingested. And maybe we also need to think about for public service, something akin to a credit report where you can actually sort of say what data is being used on me across the different departments and agencies. Can I verify that one, the data is correct. And then two, have I given consent or I've had, I made a informed choice for that data to be used for that purpose or that outcome. Are there examples uh, of countries around the world who have made uh, greater progress than the U.S. in terms of grappling with these issues? Well, there certainly is a lot of variation in how different countries are handling these types of issues. So, for example, the European Union has been very tough on privacy considerations. So they have gone further in terms of wanting to look inside the black box of artificial intelligence, uh, developing very strong privacy rules, uh, kind of respecting the idea that uh, people own their own data and uh, that you know they sh- uh, have a right to control how that information is uh, used. The United States has tended to be a little more libertarian and hands-off in thinking about those issues. I mean, we talk a lot about uh, privacy, but a lot of the privacy rules uh, still are voluntary in nature and developed by companies as opposed to imposed through uh, government uh, regulations. In Asia, there's uh, quite a bit of variation in uh, how important privacy is in particular uh, uh, countries uh, and uh, kind of how much ownership people have over their own information. So I think every country uh, is struggling with these uh, issues. Uh, Countries are kind of finding that balance and and drawing that line in different ways, depending on their own histories, their own backgrounds, and their own values. We have just about five minutes left, a little less than five minutes left. And I thought it would be interesting to ask each one of you. And uh, Stephanie Wander had to drop off. So I'm talking. Wander off. (laughs) Stephanie Wander had to wander off. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Uh, And so so we're talking with uh, David Bray who is an Eisenhower Fellow, uh, an executive in residence at Harvard and the CIO of the Federal Communications Commission. And we're talking with Daryl West, who is with the Brookings Institution. And so just in our final few minutes, would each one of you offer your thoughts or your prescription for how do we balance the sum, the summary, how do we balance these various competing interests in order to allow AI to move forward, but in a way that is supporting the common good and not detrimental to the common good. So I guess I'll jump in first. And actually, one thing we didn't get a chance to talk about was the news that happened last week that a AI machine learning algorithm beat uh, five of the world's top poker players after 20 weeks of training the machine. And basically, this was after 20 weeks of it played multiple rounds, like about upwards of 15 and 20 rounds a day with these top five poker players. And it learned every night about its new strategy and poker is interesting because it's bluffing. And so we now have a AI demonstrated that can out bluff five of the world's top bluffer poker players, which raises an interesting question about 
is it ethical for a machine to do bluffing? Is it ethical for it to do deception? If you go negotiate the price for your car and maybe you're not a good negotiator, would you want to have an app for that that will negotiate on your behalf with the dealer as opposed to doing it by yourself? That, I think, raises huge issues that the future is now and it is coming at an accelerating rate, a very fast rate. And so I would say my three recommendations would be first, where are the safe spaces to experiment at the local level as well as the national level and the global level? Because you can't even begin to tackle and approach any type of making sense of policy or something like this until you've experimented with it and you've tried to use it. Two, uh, as Daryl said and as Stephanie said, try to be as open as possible about the data that's being used as well as what the algorithm is doing. And then three, uh, I really do think, take the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, update it for the 21st century, which is do unto others as they would permit to be done unto them. And I think that's really what we need to think about going forward. Fantastic. And Daryl West, your closing thoughts. Yeah, just uh, quickly, because I know we're running out of time. Uh, I see extraordinary advances uh, coming in artificial intelligence. I mean, these systems are being uh, deployed in terms of transportation, uh, energy savings, uh, resource management, healthcare, education, and in many uh, different areas. And I think there are going to be great uh, benefits that come out of this. But I think the key is to make sure we keep the balance right and to make sure that societal interests get represented. So a little more transparency, I think, would be helpful, uh, making sure that there is anti-discrimination uh, rules and norms that are put uh, into place, and then just making sure that uh, these systems uh, kind of conform to uh, the basic values uh, that exist in any particular society. I think that would help us get the advantages of technology without suffering a downside. Okay. What a very fast conversation that has been. You've been watching episode number 218 of CXO Talk, and we've been talking about AI, the ethical issues, the governance, policy issues, and especially what's happening around the world with some of these things. And we've been talking with David Bray. We've been talking with Daryl West. And we've been talking with Stephanie Wander, who just had to drop off uh, a few minutes ago. Thanks, everybody, for watching. And next week, we have another really awesome show. So I hope you'll join us. Bye-bye.